Genesis 41. So I'll start <clears throat> with this. On Wednesday, uh, one of my daughters had a friend over and the friend's name is Eddie. So I'm in that season as a father, which is really interesting. Like, really? Okay. Boys. Oh boy. Oh boy. So his name is Eddie. So Eddie came over and he's playing with my son, Myron, who's four. And then we have another youngster with us right now. His name is Hunter and his little brother, Harrison. So they're with us. So Eddie is playing with Myron, my four-year-old and Hunter on the trampoline, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm like, whew, glad it's not me. Go right ahead, man. You can have that job for a while. So having a, and Myron just loved it. So Thursday morning, my wife's talking to Myron. He says, Myron, what do you think? He goes, I really like that boy yesterday that jumped on the trampoline with me. And so my wife said, well, what's that boy's name? And so Myron stops and he starts to think, see little gears turning. And he says, huh, it sounds something like spaghetti. <laughs> so Eddie has a new nickname at our house. Eddie Spaghetti. Close guess. I would say you could not guess what I'm going to talk about today. If you had any kind of a church paradigm like I had, then this concept is actually foreign. It's like, what, really? So try to guess what I'm gonna talk about. Let's go. Genesis 41, beginning in 37. I'll recap where we're at, for those that are new, we are in the life of Joseph. He is the favorite son of Jacob. He has 10 older brothers that resent and hate him for that. He kind of earns some of it. They kidnap him, sell him into slavery. As a slave, he works his tail off. His owner's wife starts to take a liking to him, wants him, pursues him. He says, no, 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 no. As a reward for not sleeping with his boss's wife, he's thrown into jail. In jail, he works his tail off, does a good job there, meets this dude named the cupbearer. He's probably in jail for five years. The cupbearer has a bad dream one night. Joseph interprets the dream. His interpretation comes true. The cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh the king, is hanging out with Pharaoh, supposed to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. Like, there's this dude that's brilliant in jail, forgets about Joseph until Pharaoh has a bad dream. It's a bad dream about fat cows and skinny cows. I don't think it's all that scary when I read it. Big giant spiders scare me, but not cows. They're just not that scary. They lick their nostril. I mean, how can you be scared of them? So he's freaked out about it. He takes the dreams to his interpreters. They can't figure it out. So then the cupbearer's like, oh man, ding, 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 ding. Two years ago, this dude in prison can interpret dreams. Get him up here. So Joseph comes up. There's actually two parallel dreams. And Joseph says, they're one and the same, meaning the seven fat cows are seven good years and the seven skinny cows are seven really bad years of famine. And here's what you need to do. He interprets a dream and then he gives him a plan. He goes, here's what we can do. It's not the end of the world. During the seven fat years, find somebody who can take the excess and the surplus and store that up so that we can eat off that during the seven skinny years. And so that's, right after that, idea by Joseph given to Pharaoh, that's where we pick it up, verse 37. 
This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now we get to Joseph's rise. It's been down, 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 down. Now we see his rise. Here's what's shocking to me. Joseph is described by Pharaoh as being filled with God's spirit. Do you know that Joseph is the first man in the Bible, the first person in the Bible who's ever described as being filled with God's spirit? He's the first one. And what is Joseph? He's a politician now, right? He's a politician. He's a godly, honest, hardworking politician who keeps his hands off the girls. Add that to your list of biblical miracles. <laughs> and it's a politician that the Bible says, he is full of God's spirit, not a priest or a pastor or a missionary. If I was to say right here to begin this message, hey, I wanna tell you about the person God uses. What kind of career would come to your mind? Would it be politician? No, pastor, missionary, something like that, right? No, it's a politician. The second person in the Bible who is said to be full of God's spirit, does anyone know who that might be? You can take a guess. You will be wrong unless you really know. It's Exodus 31, a guy by the name of Bezalel, who's a construction foreman. That's the second dude. White collar, blue collar, politician, excavator, operator. Those are the first two people in scripture who are said, these guys are full of my spirit. How awesome is that? Because I have this paradigm in my mind and it's actually a virus that I think got into the church 700 years ago. And I'm gonna repeat something I've said before because it's this important. 700 years ago, a brilliant man named St. Thomas Aquinas, who I like some of the stuff he did, I don't like this. He said, life is like a two-story building. There's low-story stuff and there's high-story stuff. And the low-story stuff you do so that you can get up to the high-story stuff. So low-story stuff would be this, changing the diapers on your kid, driving to work, work, mowing the lawn, combing your hair, getting your hair cut, all the ordinary stuff. He says, that's low story stuff. And we do those things so that we can then get up to the high story, which is Bible, prayer, and singing. Important stuff, no doubt. So he divided life into the secular and the sacred. He's the guy that makes this divide, right? So he does that. And that kind of infiltrated into the church and it's still here. Because I'll hear somebody, they'll say this to me, Matt, I really want to be in full-time ministry. And my answer to them is, 
You are. You're a full-time servant of King Jesus. What do you mean? You already are. So we still have it in our brain that there is this divide. Like this is, this is low story stuff. And if only I could get here, it would be awesome. No way. I disagree with that. And I think if you read the Bible, the Bible tells us that's wrong. First by these two guys. The first two, anointed with God's spirit, politician, and a construction foreman. But then you get to the 613 rules that God gives to govern Israel. These rules are to help Israel become an example to all the nations of what it looks like for a people to serve Yahweh. So you would think those should really tell us what's important to God. Well, if you read them, the vast majority of those laws have nothing to do with the Bible or prayer or singing. The, ma- the vast majority are bottom story. When you go out and go to the bathroom, take a shovel and bury it. Bottom story or top story? If you dig a hole, tell your neighbor so at night he doesn't fall into it. Bottom story or top story? If you build a balcony above your house, that's awesome, good. You see the views and watch the caravans go by, awesome. But put a fence around it so people won't fall off of it. Right? You're on the top story, but it's actually a bottom story activity. If you touch a dead body, wash your hands, and then wait a little while to see if you get the same disease and die. Because we don't want to spread it like the plague. Bottom story, top story. Right? You just go through them. The vast majority are orchestrating Israel to look like a certain kind of community. Okay? So what has happened in the church in the 700 years since St. Thomas Aquinas is there's been this separation of church and career, ministry and industry, work and worship. They become two different spheres, secular and sacred. And I think it's so damaging and it's so wrong because if you do that, then guess what? The vast majority of your life is filler to get back to what's important. That's dumb. So your 40 hour work week is just filler so you can get back to what's really important. So driving or whatever, all, most of life is filler. I disagree with the two story idea. I think the biblical metaphor for us in this life is not a house, it's a tent. That we're pilgrims and we live in tents. Have you ever seen a two-story tent? Right? You don't wanna be on the bottom story or the top story for that matter. You don't wanna be in that thing. It doesn't work. No way, it's flat. It's flat because 1 Corinthians 13, 31 says this, whatever you do, do it all under the glory of God. Whether you're driving your car, whether you're working a job, whether you're praying, whatever it is, everything can bring glory to God. And there's one group of people that to me seem to marry work and worship well. You know who they are? Professional athletes. Right? Believing professional athletes. Remember Tim Tebow? He had that magical run with the Denver Broncos when they were doing really well and he was actually scoring touchdowns. What would he do when he would score a touchdown? Right? Get on the knee and be like, there's a term for it. What's it called? Tebowing, right? Just Google Tebowing. You'll get tons of pictures of him doing that. And what is he saying? God has given me these gifts and these opportunities and this time for me to be able to do this. And I'm thanking him for it. And the other professional athletes, even to this day, if they score a touchdown and they love Jesus, what will they do when they run into the end zone? Right? Point up. What are they saying? Thank you, Jesus, for giving me the skills and the opportunity to do this. That's what they're doing, right? I love that. 
I think there should be that all over the place. So if you're an excavator operator and you dig a perfectly straight, brilliantly level trench, you hop off that excavator and you get on the ground and you just do. <laughs> if you're grilling at Elmer's and it's a perfect round six inch pancake that is golden brown, spatula to the sky. <laughs> you see that thing? If you're a plumber and you fix a leak and charge a fair price, man, you stand up, pull up your pants and take that wrench to the sky, man. Praise God. If you fix a car and only fix what needs to be broken or need, what? <laughs> Crescent wrench to the sky, <laughs> right? That's the way it should be. You frame up that wall and it is true and square hammer time, man. Put that hammer in the sky. And I'm joking, kind of, but I'm not. Because everything we do can bring glory. There's no such thing as filler. No way. So a year ago, I had this idea and we're still trying to figure out how to do it well. We ordain elders and pastors and that kind of stuff. I want to bring up people and just ordain doctors and lawyers and excavator operators and construction foremen and nurses and teachers. So this summer, we brought up all the teachers. If you're outside, we brought up every teacher, every admin person, whoever works at a school. And we said, you are missionaries in Grants Pass. We ordain you. Go, share, live, breathe, be Jesus in those places. Because that's how strong we feel about this. But this whole two-story thing is damaging. It's done. So Joseph here, he knows he's been gifted. He has experience. He's full of God's spirit. He's going to take all of that and he's going to work in a secular pagan place called Egypt. That's what he's going to do. He's brilliant. And he is, I think, an example of what you and I are to be doing the same thing. Like we take our gifts and our skills and God has filled it Fill us with his spirit, Ephesians 1.13 says, that they're just glimpses of what we really are, that we are spirit-empowered to work in wherever we're at, and that wherever we're at is a mission field where God can use us, that you guys go places that they won't invite me. They invite plumbers and electricians and pump people in places that I don't get to go. So you get to be Jesus in those environments, and it's awesome. And you keep going there, and you bring it. Well, how do you do that? How do you possibly bring God's presence into work? That, that seems easy, but I don't know how to do it. I have tons of ideas. You want to demonstrate you're filled with God's spirit at the workplace? Number one, work hard. That's simple. Work hard. You and I are the only Bible most people in Josephine County are going to read. There's about 100,000 people now in Grants, in Josephine County, somewhere in that neighborhood. 10,000 go to church. That means there is a 90% chance that people that you're around don't read the Bible, don't know any theology. And the only theology they're learning is by you and how you work. So work hard, work hard. Number two, man, when you're driving to work, why not always take that time and pray for the people that you'll be meeting with or pray for your coworkers? Why not do that? Just have a list. How about when you get to work, if there's a problem with one of your coworkers and they have an issue, what if you prayed for them at work? And I know that is awkward. I know that's as awkward as it gets. I get that. I have the easy job there because people ask me what I do. Sometimes I'll be ornery and I'll say, I'm a teacher. And they'll be like, what do you teach? Hedonism. 
They're like, what? Tell me about hedonism. What do you do? I say, oh, I'll tell you about hedonism because I believe this book teaches us how to have the greatest life ever, no doubt about it. So I'll teach you how to be a hedonist. Sometimes I'll do that, but most of the time I just say I'm a pastor. So then it opens up doors for me, no doubt, or it closes doors. People are just like, look at the time, I gotta go, right? That happens as well. So it's, you know, I guess it's awkward to pray for somebody, right? The praise team doesn't show up behind you and start strumming softly as you pray. That, I, I get it. But man, you can have a great impact on somebody. It's a short prayer because you're working. Not a long prayer, you got 30 seconds, max. Pray for people, right? How about, how about we, as a community, are people that work, and as we work, we never look at our smartphones? How would that work? I say promotion for you. Because here's what's happening. I, I went up to a, a register, and it wasn't that bad, but I get up there to buy something, and the guy was on his smartphone, and he said, hey, hold on a second. I went, whoa. I didn't say anything, but I thought, man, that's interesting. And he wasn't long or anything, but just the idea, like, bro, I'm the reason why you have a job right now. I'm buying something. That's kind of where we're at now. What if we said, you know what? We will never look at our smartphones except for on our breaks and our lunches, period. That that stuff can wait. Waited for a long time before smartphones came out. What if we did something like that? I think there's tons of ways to bring God's spirit into the workplace. Work hard. But here's the one I want to talk about. It's the one Joseph has. And Joseph had good jobs, and he had super bad jobs. He was a slave being assaulted by somebody. He worked in a prison as a prisoner. No one signed up for that job, okay? But what did I say last week? Joseph never does. Complains. No matter what job it is, no matter how bad his boss is, no matter how bad his boss's wife is, no matter how bad the warden is, Joseph never once is it recorded, Joseph complains. I think that's awesome. I think it's brilliant. And there's a theology behind it that I want us to try to get. And here's the theology. You and I, Genesis 1.26 says, we are created in the image of God. That means simply this. What God does, how he rules, how he deals with people, how he works. And we actually have an entire chapter about how God works. How God works, we're supposed to look a lot like God then that we reflect his attributes and his character and the way that he does what he does. Okay, Genesis 1. Now, sometimes the best way to understand what that looks like is actually to reverse it. So what if God reflected you and me in the way that he worked in Genesis 1? What would that look like? What would Genesis 1 look like? If we said instead of us looking like God, God looked like us in our work week. Let's take a look. So, in Genesis 1, Monday, God gets to work, but he gets to work late because he had to view a couple extra episodes of Stranger Things. It's so good. I couldn't stop. Man, it just got into me, so I didn't go to bed till 2. He gets stuck behind somebody, so he's a half an hour late. Gets in there late. No big deal. Today is make light, separate light from day. Kind of a big job. So he's like, man, I need a cup of coffee first. So God gets a cup of coffee. And he's sitting down, he can't really engage, a little Facebook time, a little Craigslist time, a little Insta envy, like, man, they got great light over there. How'd they do that in that universe? Gotta figure that out, right? So he doesn't really get done. So Tuesday comes around. Tuesday's shame day, because he didn't get done what he was supposed to do on Monday. So now he's feeling bad about it on Tuesday. And Tuesday, he's supposed to be making an ocean. 
like that, ocean, Pacific, Atlantic, and oh man, I don't know, Indian. Doesn't really do it because it's shame day. Wednesday rolls around, tree day. God's like, man, sequoias, have you seen how big those are? Oh, I don't think I can do this today. I'm gonna schedule this for next Monday. That's, a, that's an activity that takes all week long. I need to regurgitate that. That'll be a Monday job. So Thursday rolls around. Thursday is sun and moon. God's like, the sun. I mean, really? You know how big that thing is? This is unfair. They ask unfair things of me to do at this job. Friday, Fridays make the zoo. I live in a zoo, man. This place is crazy. TGIF though. Thank God it's Friday. Wait a second. Thank me it's Friday. I'm going home. So Adam and Eve don't end up in paradise. They end up in a van down by the river. You've seen them at Baker Park. <laughs> right? We should really think about what Genesis 1 looks like. I mean, how does God work? He gets done what he's supposed to get done every day. And the end of his day, he says, it was good. What I did today was good. I like what I did. He never complains. He never says it's too hard. It's interesting to me. Well, Matt, come on. God was dealing with perfection. Right. But then he doesn't. Because God creates this beautiful, perfect thing, hands it over to two people, and what do they do with it? They wreck it. You ever made something really good at work and have your coworker wreck it? That's exactly what happens to God. He makes this really good thing, hands it over to partners. You think, you're going to partner with me. Join with me. All right, you're my Imago day. And they wreck it. What does God do? Does he complain then? No. He actually tells him a better story. He says, I know you've ruined this and it's going to be tough, no doubt about it, but there's hope. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. There's hope. I'm going to tell you a better story. There's hope. And God from Genesis 3 begins his greatest work, which is redemption, fixing what you and I broke. That's his greatest work. It takes the most time in scripture. It goes from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20. All but four chapters of the Bible are about God fixing what man broke. 1,185 chapters. So when I hear people say to me this, Matt, my work is dark. Matt, my work is flawed. Matt, my work is hard. You know what I say to them? Brilliant. God has you there for a reason. Who better than you to go into that place and give hope. Who better than you to say to the Pharaoh of your place, who's saying, man, we got this famine coming, this hard times coming, who better than you to say, perfect. Here's a hope, here's a better story. Who better than you to tell the people that you work with the better story of our king? Who better than you? Awesome, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Joseph does this in pagan, idolatrous Egypt. Brings God's spirit brings a better story, brings a solution to a famine. I love that. I've been praying this for a little while now. It's on this idea of bringing God's spirit. And I stole it from Dallas Willard, at least the first half, because Dallas Willard said this. He said, invite Jesus to your work because he's the smartest person in your field. Now that clicked in my head for the first time. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's obvious, right? So I'm inviting in Jesus. And then I'm praying Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter three, where he says this to God and God gets stoked on it. He says, God, give me a listening ear so I can rule well. I've been praying that. God, Jesus, come with me. 
And then help me to hear you so that during my day, during my week, I can rule well. Every single one of us has an area that we rule. You might rule over an excavator or rule over a classroom or rule over a checkout counter. There's an area that you have rule and authority over in your job. And you're saying, Jesus, help me to rule well as a parent, as a mom, as a husband, as a father, as a truck driver. Help me to rule well this area that you've given to me. Come with me. I think that's how he does it. And notice what happens with Joseph. We'll see it play out. But Joseph makes progress. Skip forward. He has two kids. And here are the names of them. It's verse 51. Same chapter. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh literally means forgotten. How would you like that as a name? What's your name, bro? Forgotten? Ooh. There's a reason though. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I love that second one. Forgotten and fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here's what's amazing to me. As I read the study, read the study, read the story of Joseph. Joseph, for eight years, has no contact with his family. He's only one week's journey away from his family. He could have easily made it up there and been like, hey, dad, I'm alive. It's all good. For eight years, he does not do that. Why? Because Egypt needed him. That's why. There's a famine coming. And Egypt needs me right here. The land of my affliction needs me. This hard place, this difficult place. So I'm staying put. I'm gonna stay right here and help Egypt. That's so awesome. Egypt needed him. And I think you see that's actually the pattern that God wants with us. Because in the Bible, there are two wicked empires that hurt God's people. The first one's gonna be Egypt in Exodus with Pharaoh killing the babies. The second evil empire, anyone know what it is? Crickets, Babylon. Babylon is the second evil empire. They come in, they swoop in, they take all of God's people, they transport them over to, it's, it's a refugee camp by a sewage canal coming out of the city of Babylon. That's where they live. And they hate it. And they start grumbling. And they start saying this, we just wanna get the H-E-L-L out of here. We don't care about this place. We don't care if it goes to H-E-L-L. It's Jeremiah 28. And so then God says, Jeremiah 29, he rebukes them and says, that's not the attitude of God's people. And he actually says to them, invest, increase, and bless this city. Bless pagan, idolatrous Babylon. Stay here. Give your kids in marriages. Plant gardens. Build houses. Pray for the peace of this city because in its peace, you'll be blessed. That makes a really simple point. If Babylon flourishes, my people, pagan, idolatrous Babylon, if it flourishes, you're gonna flourish. If things get better in Babylon, they'll get better for you. So work there and bless and engage that city and help it because it's gonna ultimately come back to you, right? If a city does well, the citizens do well. If crime drops in grants, pass, is that a good idea? Oh, totally, right? You don't got some kid mugging you for your quad shot. Like that's a good thing. 
So God's very practical there. Stay, invest, increase, bless, because if this city has peace, you're gonna have peace. You'll reap the reward of that. That's God's way all the time. Stay, invest, bless. I think that's the way we're supposed to look at Grants Pass. You can look at Grants Pass with whatever you want. Problems, homeless, issues, marijuana. You name it, you can be like, oh, that's it. I'm taking my ball, taking my light and going home. 700 acres in Burns, Oregon. That's what I'm gonna go do. You could do that. But I think the call of God's people is always, no, I wanna bless and invest and increase in this city. So I have an article right now. You can Google it. New York Times, out last week. And it's called this, The Unsung Heroes of the Great Crime Decline. Did you know we're in a great crime decline right now? Nobody knows that, right? Because that's not good news. Good news is dude went in, broke in, whatever, killed 14 people. That's, I'm not talking good news like good news. I'm talking like that's what sells. And then we have this echo chamber called social media. And guess what echoes in that chamber? That kind of news. The good news just goes, no one forwards it. So what we hear now, we're in this crazy thing, but actually statistics are showing, no, it's all going down. Homicide rate. The homicide rate today is one half of what it was 25 years ago, except for one city. Say it, you know it, because we hear it all the time. Look out for Chicago, Chicago, right? There's a great place for someone to go and be a Joseph in that place and transform it. All right, so crimes on the decline. Teenage pregnancy hit its peak in 1991. Since that time, it has gone down today. Teenage pregnancy is almost one third of what it was when I was 19 years old in 1991. Did you know that? I guess good news. So they're trying to figure out, and there's a bunch more, what's led to this decline, this slow kind of decline over the past quarter century? What is it? They thought maybe it's the economy. I don't think so. And neither do they. Because remember 2008 and 2009 and 2010 and 2011? Was that a good economic time for America? No, it was brutal. It was brutal. Guess what crime did during those years? Continued its trajectory. Hmm. Maybe it's a jail system. No, it's the same jail system. So they said this. This is what they said. The unsung hero is you and me. That what they found is this. More than any other time, people have begun to say, we're the solution. There's a famine in our land. We're the solution. So I actually Googled some of the names that they mentioned in some of the organizations, and I tracked back on them, and they were believers in Jesus Christ. It was believers saying, no, there's a bad thing in our city, and it's you and me, kids of the king, you and me, salt and light, you and me, we're the ones to bring the solution for that famine. And they've invested, and they've vested themselves in those cities, not running from it. And I think that's what you and I are supposed to do. And I don't think it's that hard, honestly. I don't think it's that hard to affect the kingdom. So I'll give you an example. I got an email from a guy, and I don't get these very often. I like it when I do. And he just said this, I wanna to talk to you about the gospel. No problem. So we met two Sundays ago, right here. And I start to talk to the guy, great guy, tough guy, a Joseph kind of guy, bad, bad stuff happened to him, uh, brutal stuff. And he's tatted up and looks like a tough guy. He's a tough guy. 
And so we're talking. He's like, I started coming this summer when you're outside. And he said, I came a couple of weeks and then I was going to leave. But the only reason why I didn't leave is I was there one Sunday, t-shirt on, tats out, looking like me. And this older lady came up and she gave me this big giant hug. And she said, welcome to God's family. And he goes, that was like in me. And the next Sunday I saw her and she talked to me and she remembered me. And then he goes, on the third Sunday, I wasn't gonna come back, but then I remembered her and I thought, she's probably gonna miss me. So I went. <laughs> and she talked to him. And the hook got in her, in him because of her. And then that Sunday, we started sharing two weeks ago and he gave his life to Jesus. Not because of me, because of one person who said, it's not that hard. There's a famine there. That guy right there needs to be welcomed to the family of God and gave him a hug. And that's the hook that God used. It's not that hard. It's we need to be people like Joseph that say, who better than us? Who better than us? Who's better equipped than us to be the answer to the famines we see in life? Who better than us? Nobody. Nobody. Okay? So I got a famine. We talked about this as elders as well. It actually shocked me. So my kids went to the soccer finals and uh, a bunch of families went up there and we stayed in the same hotel. So we're at this hotel and you come down for breakfast and you're meeting some of the families really and getting to talk to them a little bit longer than a short little conversation. So I met Mason and Sean Hartford. Sean Hartford, she works at Three River School District. Sort of asking her like, what do you do? What's happening there? And she does a bunch of things. But one of the things she said she does is, uh, I deal with the homeless kids of Three River School District. I said, homeless kids? Really? I said, how many homeless kids are there in the Three River School District? Take a guess. How many do you think there are? 300 homeless kids in the Three River School District. I was shocked. Like, I'm just like, what? Right? You can blame an adult for being homeless if you want to. You can find reasons. You did this, you didn't do that, whatever it is. And maybe you're right and maybe you're wrong. You gotta talk to them. But how do you blame a kid? You just didn't win the lottery of your parents owning a home or having a home. That's the only thing that's happened to a kid. It just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to think about a kid waking up this morning in a car, freezing cold. It breaks my heart. Or a tent. So Mason's telling me about this, this mom who has two little kids. He goes there every Monday and brings her two new propane tanks because she's in a tent, freezing. He's like, I just don't know what to do, man. I don't know. I just bring her propane. That's what I can do right now. It breaks my heart. That's a famine. And it's not just Grants Pass. You can't be like, Grants Pass is so bad. See, that's why. No, it's actually national. Homelessness in students now is double what it was 10 years ago. So while crime may be going down, there's some other famines that are going up. And one of them is homeless kids. New York City, the number there is one in 10 students is homeless in New York City. It's just unbelievable. There's an article in the Register Guard, you can read it. Um, it's uh, one homeless kid in every classroom. So in Oregon right now, every classroom, if you go to a classroom with 25 kids, there's one homeless kid in there. That's the number. And I think, who better than us? Who better than us? To say to our community, no, that's a famine that has to stop. No way. Not in my town. No way. We have a solution for that. So we actually discuss safe families. Now, safe families is a mechanism that maybe will work. It, it's had some hiccups over the past year and a half. We've learned some things, but we just hired a full-time person that that's all they're going to do is safe families. And one of the first things that she's going to do is go meet with Sean Hartford and say, how can we partner with you in this? Because the people of God 
who wanna invest and increase and bless our city, we wanna know how can we invest in that? Because we feel, we feel this is wrong, that every child should wake up to a warm home and a good meal, to set them on the right track for that day. What if we said that? Who better than us? Who better than the people of God? I don't think there is anyone. I know there isn't anyone. The Bible says we've been given God's spirit. We are spirit-empowered individuals. Who better than us? No one. So as you come to the table today, here's what I'd ask you to do. I'd ask you to remember the table you're eating at. You're coming to the king's table. You're the cupbearer. You have the ear of the king. Dream big, ask big. Let's say zero homeless kids at Three River School District. That's what I wanna ask for because you're the king. Why not ask big? And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is this one. It's Romans 16, 20. And it's an enigma because it says this. It says that God will crush Satan's head under your feet. Who crushes the serpent? Who crushes the head of Satan? Is it God or you and me? Right, there's such great theology in that verse. It's both. Without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. That God has said, you are my image bearers. You're the image bearer in me on earth. And just like I care for the orphan and the foreigner and the widow, you're supposed to do that as well. And that when you partner with me in this, the head of the serpent gets crushed and Grant's past gets blessed. That's what happens. We get to partner with him. We get to ask big. We come to the king's table. Let's have that number be zero. Let's have that number be zero. Come to the king's table. So Jesus, I thank you for so many Josephs that are in here that are pushing back against darkness, that are joining with you, that love your son, that know that we are the best equipped people in Grant's Pass for the famine that's gripping us. It's us. I pray for the rest of us. I pray that we would know who we are. We sit and dine at the king's table. We have your ear and you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And may we dream big. And may we see our city of Grants Pass and our county of Josephine County, may we see it blessed. May we see it full of your shalom. May we see it increasing because the people of God have partnered with you in bringing salt and light and crushing the serpent's head in Grants Pass. So may we eat with you. And I ask this in your name, amen.